Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Just a minor trivial topic today, the future existence of human civilization. The stakes are pretty high, I would say, when all is said and done. We're talking, of course, uh, COP26, which now takes place in Glasgow, where global leaders are convening in order to discuss measures to tackle the climate emergency. Now, if global temperatures rise above 1.5 centigrade above pre-industrial levels then humanity faces catastrophe and i'm afraid to say that the situation we currently face is catastrophe and it's about mitigating the scale of that calamity but we know that unless we take drastic measures then we face ever more extreme weather events destabilization of ecosystems rising sea levels droughts fires and much of our only planet, this tiny rock, which is uh, orbiting through space, being rendered uninhabitable for vast numbers of people to live, forcing many of them, of course, from their homes. Now, all of this is already happening. The climate emergency is not some abstraction in the future. It's very much in the here and now. But COP26 provides an opportunity to build pressure, to, to put pressure on our leaders, uh, who are not doing enough uh, in order to tackle this most critical of existential emergencies. So we've got some great guests today, and they're going to do most of the talking, because as you can hear, my voice is not, well, I mean, thank the Lord, many of you are thinking, finally, be, finally being silenced uh, by by whatever this is. I don't have COVID, we've done that. I think I've got that out of my system, to be honest with you. Fun as it was, it's not COVID, uh, I've checked. But um, my voice is struggling. So thankfully, we have some fantastic guests who will take the slack. Just before I go on, I can see also the Wi-Fi is also now struggling. So it's all it's all happening um, uh, today, but we're going to get through this. Um, and on the podcast, press subscribe as well, because much of our audience is, of course, on the very successful podcast, which often is at the top of UK politics podcast charts. Um, and I should say as well, the documentaries we do, which you make possible, we have one finally coming out this week, which looks at the war of essentially property developers and working class communities. So we spent uh, time in, in a working class community in Battersea in South London, handing the megaphone to people, working class people in the community about their experiences. It's going to be a really good um it's a fantastic video made, of course, by our team. You made that possible on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84. Or you can use Super Chat, as Tad Campbell has uh, already, uh, and David Barreter. Uh, if you use Super Chat as well uh, to put questions to our guests, that also supports uh, the show as well. Um, and I will read through the Super Chats at the end. I will uh, thank everyone specifically uh, for their support. 
before my voice entirely collapse, I'm now going to bring in the fantastic Professor Mark Maslin, who is a climate change professor at University College London. Mark, hello. Hi, bring you in. How are you Hi, doing? How's it going? Great to see you. Not too bad, but going to be a bit of a stressful two weeks, I feel. Why is it stressful? Let's 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 do a, a bit of a kind of pep talk. Why why what's the stress that you feel about this? So I think the stress is that we have so much expectation going on for COP26 and there's so many good pledges that have already come out that what we're hoping is that we can actually get to an agreement that actually takes the Paris agreement from 2015 and really ups the ante and actually means that we are on a real pathway to decarbonizing the planet. But again, there's going to be something like 20 to 30,000 people running around Glasgow, all trying to actually push the global political system in the right direction. So that's why I'm stressed. That makes sense. That is, that is stressful. The stakes are very, very high. So let's talk firstly explain actually what a lot of people obviously see in cop in the headlines cop 26 explain what it is what it can end up agreeing and what it can't do so people's expectations are are correctly set to the right the right level i think it's really important to understand that because we are expecting cop 26 to save the planet and it can't because what it's doing is setting up an, an international agreement so COP stands for the Conference of the Parties. And what it is, is all the countries of the UN have signed up, so that's 197 countries, to negotiate a deal to deal with climate change. And this all was started and agreed at the Rio Earth Conference in two, uh, 1992, all the way back then. And so this is why we're on to the 26th of the annual meetings. I think the first thing people should realize is these negotiations are going on every day. So it's not suddenly that everybody turns up once a year and goes, oh, we better have an agreement. So the diplomats and the negotiators have been going at it all year. So that's a, a great part. And we have to remember what, what can be agreed is what countries want to actually pledge and the actual global sort of uh, pledges, uh, what will they add up to? So at the moment, Paris Agreement says that we are going to stick to, if possible, significantly below two degrees warming and hopefully one and a half degrees. And to do that, we have to hit net zero globally by 2050. And then countries come with their NDCs, National Defined Contributions, which we refer to as pledges, basically. And they say, right, we're going to cut by X amount by 2030. And then we will do this by 2050. The problem is that at the moment, those are up to them. They're not tied to that global target, which is a bit odd because sort of companies, when they do their science-based targets, tie it to Paris, but countries don't legally have to. So at the moment, we're missing that. And so what we want to do in Glasgow is get everybody together, build that solidarity and go, okay, right, come on, up the ante, you've got to at least match what Paris basically set out and you've already agreed to, you now just have to actually put it in your NDC. In terms of, I mean, I mentioned, uh, of course, this attempt to, to keep global temperatures one and a half centigrade or below 
as you mentioned, significantly below two centigrade above pre-industrial levels. Explain why that matters. What what are we talking about there in terms of the impacts of our failure to keep temperatures below that? So I think that 2021 has been a really good example of what can go wrong with climate change. So many scientists like myself have actually been quite shocked by the number of extreme events and how hard they've been. I mean, you had 49.5 degrees Celsius in Western Canada. And so what we're looking at is these heat waves, these floods, these droughts occurring in 2021, which we would have expected to have occurred at a higher global temperature. Because at the moment, we've warmed the planet by about 1.1, 1.2 degrees, depending on how you measure it. And so therefore, this is an early warning of what could go wrong in the future. So I think the other thing that the science and the IPCC report came out in August to a huge fanfare, but what it showed was there is a big difference between one and a half degrees warming and two degrees warming in terms of impacts. And it sounds a small number, half a degree. But the thing is, that's the average for the whole planet. We know that places are warming up quicker. The Arctic is warming up three or four times quicker than the average. And also what people don't realize is many people live in areas where changes in temperature and humidity will make a huge difference. So for my biggest worry is, of course, basically a lot of the food in the world, about half the food is produced in the tropics and the subtropics by small farmers. If the temperature goes up and the humidity goes up, there's more and more days when it's physiologically impossible to work outside. It's just too hot and humid. And if you start losing a lot of those days, then suddenly the amount of food you can produce actually drops markedly. So we're looking at a food security crisis as well as all the extreme weather events on top of that. So you mentioned, you mentioned Paris COP. So just go talk, talk about that. Why, why so important? Oh, so it sounds awful to come on your podcast and basically say how wonderful the French are. But the Paris Agreement was super amazing because what they did was they got all the countries, 197 countries, to agree to the agreement. And that sounds really strange, but they basically used every trick in the book, you know, very Machiavellian, etc. They got different presidents to talk to other presidents to actually get rid of log jams. But what it said was, and this is why it's a beautiful baseline, it said the leaders of the world will commit to keeping temperatures significantly below two degrees. Mm -hmm. And this is where the small island nations and the least developed countries did a brilliant political job because they then slipped into the executive summary the the, the real nice uh, section that said, and our aspiration is to keep temperatures to one and a half degrees. And I think that was an amazing piece of politics. What it did then was say, right, well, how do we do it? Scientists then came along and went, oh, we're off the hook. Right, now we can actually tell you how we do that. And this is where net zero came in. We suddenly realized that we're not talking about cutting 50% of our pollution or 90%. No, by 2050, the middle of the century, we need to actually get to 2050 and we need to get to net zero there at some point and so it actually set up a nice agreement but the problem is 
What we need is ambition on top of that. So it's great that leaders have agreed that we're going to somehow do this, but we need the ambition from different countries. We actually need them to actually have the policies to do it. So let's talk about the specific demands people, citizens, should be organising to place on their leaders at COP. What, what are the sort of key central demands? So for me, I think there are three things that we can try to demand from COP. And I think then there are things that we can demand from our leaders which are different. So I think first, I think that we can demand that we must have countries, pledges or NDCs linked to the actual Paris Agreement to basically getting to that net zero. The second thing is we have to basically get that $100 billion that's been promised to help least developed countries and countries that rely heavily on fossil fuels for their economy to help them decarbonize. And that should be the bottom. That should be the base number. Because, of course, it's a small amount of money compared with the $14 trillion that countries have spent trying to actually stimulate the economy after COVID. And the last one, which I think is really interesting, is we need to be able to have tighter agreements on protecting our carbon, our natural carbon sinks. So basically making sure that we uh, reduce deforestation as much as possible, make sure that we then encourage countries to reforest, rewild, uh, and actually change how they actually do agriculture. So basically, we have to really tighten up what we can do in those areas. What can we demand of countries? Actually, what really frustrates me is all the things that we can do to decarbonize, okay, are win-win. They basically save the planet, they reduce the emissions, but they also usually improve our health, whether it's better diet, cleaner air, cleaner water, it also makes us wealthier because the green economy is expanding so rapidly that actually that's where all the tech and the wealth is actually going into. So that really, really helps. But it's also going to make people safer. So people can be feel safer and actually, therefore, they can actually have a more productive and better life. So the weird thing is when everybody goes, it's going to cost us too much to basically decarbonize. Well, actually rubbish, because if you look at the down draw project, it says if we do everything properly, save us $46 trillion, just half the world's GDP. I think it's a really important point that about, for example, when people talk about a Green New Deal, Green Industrial Revolution, and about a just transition, because often those who oppose taking drastic radical action to take on the climate emergency, it's in their interest to frame it as this will be terrible sacrifice, job killing policies, that kind of thing when actually a lot of what we're talking about would actually, as you say, improve people's living standards, better public transport, for example. So rather than the government, as Rishi Sunak did, cutting tax on, on uh, domestic flights, instead we would invest public money to make public transport more affordable, uh, better quality, more reliable, and so on, wouldn't we? I mean, that, do you think that's what's really important, that climate justice campaigners frame it in terms of this is taking action that isn't, isn't this huge sacrifice you're making, but it actually will make your lives better as well as the earth more sustainable. I think that's absolutely essential. We must counter this nasty climate change denial approach, which is they've stopped discussing the science because 
the science is the science. They, they've lost that battle. They're now going, oh, it's too expensive for going net zero. <gasps> Poor people will be basically sort of like out of pocket. And I'm sorry, I always stop them and go, hang on. Why do we have poor people? Why do we have extreme poverty? Well, actually, nothing to do with climate change. It's because the government has decided how to redistribute wealth among the country. And therefore, they decided not to do it fairly. So therefore, that's why we have extreme poverty, particularly in the UK and the US, because of that distribution. So let's stop there. Right, let's move on to climate change. Hard-nosed economists say that if we don't deal with climate change by 2050, it'll cost us 20% of world GDP. That's huge, because that's world GDP in 2050. If we deal with it now, it'll cost us less than 1%. But that's the cost. And that's things like changing sort of like um, the infrastructure, actually putting in sort of like new regulations and things like that. But that doesn't count all the savings. All the savings, which are things like, as you've said, people's improvement in health. Just by getting rid of coal-fired power stations and petrol and diesel engines, air pollution would improve markedly. That would save 11 million people's lives every single year. So there are so many positives where you can actually see that decarbonizing and actually stimulating a green, sustainable economy where people actually value other things apart from how many t-shirts, cars, or shoes that they own, was a, be a real difference and actually make people's lives much better. Just finally, optimism. Let's end on some optimism. What, what do, is there cause for optimism, do you think, at COP26? So I'm optimistic. Two years ago, I wasn't at all. But you've seen some really big statements. So you've seen that the UK and Europe are going net zero by 2050. China is actually going to peak their emissions by 2030, and I'm hoping we can persuade them to do that earlier, and they're going to hit net zero by 2060. And then the US came on and said, we're going to half our emissions by 2030 and hit net zero by 2050. So the weird thing is that we're now in a situation where we've got the three largest economic blocks in the world all saying the rhetoric of we're going to net zero and making significant cuts in the near future. What we need, though, is then to actually keep them to that, make sure that they actually put policies in that actually drive it quicker if possible. We also then need to bring the rest of the world in. So this is where solidarity is really key to COP26. We need to pull in all the other countries and make sure that we can actually focus on everybody getting to net zero as quick as possible. So I'm optimistic at the moment, but let's see what happens at COP26 because, again, the big problem is it's not been run by the French. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of hope invested in the French here. Um, <laughs> Mark, it was, a, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, and thank you for putting up with my rapidly collapsing voice but yours was lucid and clear that's what matters thank you well, thank you so much and, and safe journey up to glasgow thank you very much owen take care i really appreciate it we're really uh glad now to have our next guest the fantastic farhana uh yamin who has just so many hats that i don't know where to begin uh climate lawyer uh author speaker uh visiting professor 
a lot of things, Farhana. You're busy. You're quite a busy person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, actually, I, I've been in these negotiations for now 30 years, since 1991. Um, and I've realized actually the different hats help. They help me. And the visiting professorship at the University of the Arts London is uh, really a key to uh, this realization that I've had in the last few years that we need to get the creative our creativity going, our creative industries. This isn't all about uh, science, uh, the scientists and the economists and the lawyers like myself. We frankly failed to communicate sufficiently the urgency that's needed. We need every single sector. We need our hearts as well as our brains to engage with this problem. We need um, not just cool graphics. We really need uh, a new vision that's uh, that I have. And I think some of the most beautiful, hopeful events that are happening here outside of that uh, sterile uh, lack of ambition venue, uh, the, the formal negotiations which have just started, that's not to say I think they're not important, they're hugely important. But it's really our own imagination, our own bonds with each other, our own creativity to imagine uh, a system which is uh, uh, far better than the one that we've got and not based on its flawed DNA. So the flawed DNA of uh, the present geopolitical and financial and economic system stemmed from uh, 400 years ago when basically black and brown people, women, you know, me basically, weren't even recognized as people worthy of rights. So why should the DNA of this system care about me now? The DNA of the existing system is toxic and that's what we're here for in Glasgow to reset uh, and fundamentally re recognize, to reset uh, our own relationships and bonds and to imagine a very different future uh, and to go beyond the incrementalism of these sorts of cops. So let's talk about the significance of the summit as you see it. What's the kind of big, big significance that you would pin on this? Well, there's obviously, as Mark explained, he's right. Uh, I've been to 24 of these uh, summits known as COPs, the annual meetings that track progress and agree new actions. Um, but the real significance of this is that it's really the first time where Paris was meant to have delivered on what we call ambition and we'd been lacking ambition both on the emission side and on the solidarity and support side for those who have not caused climate chaos you know basically vulnerable countries developing countries those who are later to industrialization than the global north so it's it hasn't this is the the first test and it's failed it's failed spectacularly already you're going to hear a lot uh, from the spin machine saying we've been successful in keeping 1.5 alive. Well, that's great. That's a, a little measure of success. But the 1.5 goal was put forward in 2009 by my countries. In fact, the, one of the presidents I was acting for at the time, the Maldives, the Gr Grenada, all the small islands, uh, along with the least developed countries from Africa, negotiated the inclusion of 1.5 in 2009. And then it took another, you know, five years for it to be reflected in Paris. It's taken another five years for the, the, the politicians to wake up and start treating it seriously, which is what they say they're doing here. But actually, their delivery is so short. Um, so the significance of this summit couldn't be, uh, m you know, more uh, important in the whole of human history. We're asking really for uh, everyone to examine their conscience, want to accept that the political systems are failing us. Um, we're asking them to look at the annual way in which 
year on year, the spin machines, the huge and vast uh, amounts of money that are spent by governments and rich corporations and the rich countries, you know, are, are not delivering on the commitments that they signed up to. And then to have a fundamental wake up moment. And that's what the justice reset demand that I've been pushing is all about, which is really to understand Glasgow in the 400 year cycle, you know, uh, climate change and climate chaos is resulting from a series of of of, uh, of exploitation uh, of, of colonialism, of chopping down forests, exploiting the resources of other countries, of othering them, not taking their interests and needs and human rights into account seriously for for centuries. And that's what we have to grapple with right now. Otherwise, we will fail. Uh, and, and, and Glasgow is a real measure of our strength about whether we can do that. Glasgow is a, a measure of our strength in building and shaping a new world that is much, much better uh, than the one that we have. Um, and if we can't do that in the light of COVID and all of the vulnerabilities, inequalities uh, that that's exposed, uh, if we carry on basically, you know, tinkering here and there, then we will be really um, failing everyone. I mean, you mentioned that in terms of <clears throat> the, the legacy of colonialism and so on. I mean, when we talk about the global south and poor countries which have come to the to Glasgow for the summit, what do you, what do you see as the kind of main ambitions there i suppose well the the vulnerable countries all of the developing countries uh, are coming to uh, glasgow to seek a delivery of the commitments that were promised under all three conventions you know here's the paris agreement in 2015 here's the kyoto agreement from 1997 here's the parent treaty in 1992 and each one of them has been not complied with so this time we're looking for compliance and implementation and making good the lack of progress. That's what this is about. And they were meant to come for the country, especially the G20, which is the responsible for 80% of the world's emissions. Those countries have not delivered the ambitious uh, targets that they were meant to. So that's what we're looking for. We're also looking now for an acknowledgement that loss and damage you know, harm is happening. The real world is experiencing climate chaos. Real people's lives are being destroyed. The huge numbers of uh, uh, um, people have been displaced already. For example, in Bangladesh, in many of the small islands, they will not be able to return to their home, rebuild their lives. People, lives are being lost. So actually this demand for loss and damage is what you will also hear. Uh, and that was included in Paris as well. You know, here I am. I'm now a very nerdy lawyer, actually. But we spent... <laughs> Uh, a huge amount of political effort on including this thing called Article 8, loss and damage. There it is written up there, which is different to adaptation. So no money has been going into loss and damage. There's a complete denial on the part of the richer countries that loss and damage is even happening. And there's just frankly, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's on the table in a very limited way. A new network is going to be established. Great, thank you. But where is the money to support that network? Where is the money to fund loss and damage? Those are what those are the things that we're looking for. And obviously, this 100 billion sum. So I know that sounds like a very large number to most people, but it's a very very tiny drop in the ocean uh, compared to the trillions that are going into uh, uh, our own economies right now, into the uh, the hundreds of billions that have been spent subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. So we need to have uh, a fulfillment of those symbolic figures. And as you now know from last week's assessment by the UN, by the presidency itself, only 80 billion of the 100 billion 
that was agreed in 2009 that would be start flowing from 2020 only 80 80 percent of it has come through basically um and that half of that is in the form of loans so the poorer countries who are already debt ridden are being asked to take on more loans to deal with climate impacts caused by the rich and are not being given any funding for it so it is a pretty dire situation in terms of the inequalities and it's frankly insulting uh, right now to hear um you know what would be a success is just you know mere delivery of this promise that was made as i said now almost 12 years ago and which uh, is still is is still not being met yeah you've already talked about the justice reset but talk a bit more about it and why why people should be supporting the proposal the justice reset hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I think, um, you know, we... Now, as a result of COVID, have a much better understanding globally. Everyone has seen that um, it's the same virus, but it doesn't impact everyone equally. So climate change is uh, global, but it doesn't impact everyone the same. Some people who are worse off um, are in a much more uh, vulnerable position, either because of the geographies they live in or the jobs they do or who they are. Um, and, you know, that's true of COVID and that's true of climate change. We're not all in the same boat on this, uh, let alone the fact that we didn't all cause it. So the idea of Justice Reset is really to examine and get to grips with the fact that climate change right now is being caused by the richest countries and the richest people in those countries. Uh, so the G20, so 10% of the world's population caused 50% of the world's uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, and the 1%, the, the, the richest 1%, you know, have a, an even bigger, more disproportionate uh, contribution. So we, we know these global figures, but they're not really uh, part and parcel of what we discuss here at the COP. It's very much broken into country blocks. And what we're asking for is a recognition also that harm is actually happening and needs to be dealt with uh, and, and needs to be acknowledged. So the legacy of historic injustice, the legacy of systemic uh, uh, problems uh, is what needs to be uh, grappled with right now in an immediate way. And you know whether it's health injustice, gender injustice, racial injustice, we're all in the same boat. We're all having to uh, get to grips with a, a systemic problem, but we can't fight it just sector by sector or policy by policy or year by year. We need a reset of this whole system, which is failing the majority of the world. 
So uh, we're trying to get that acknowledgement that uh, we can't just deal with it through a carbon tax. We can't just deal with it through decarbonisation of one sector uh, when the decarbonisation of that sector is largely reliant on buying offsets from another country. We need to, you know, accept that this is a global problem and actually we need a big global economy uh, at its heart. So just finally, what do you expect to come from COP26 and then where where from then? Because one of the great opportunities, of course, is that it pushes the climate emergency up the headlines. There's more focus, there's more debate. We can have these sorts of conversations. So what are you expecting and where, where using this as something of a launchpad, where next for the climate justice movement, do you think? Um. I think what is um, uh, what would be a wonderful outcome and what we're trying to achieve here is, in fact, a recognition uh, and the inclusion of some language that will really operationalize the climate justice provisions that are already in the preamble of this agreement that will uh, operationalize the just transition language that is already in the agreement. And basically nothing has really been done on those. So as a nerdy lawyer, what I'm hoping this COP will do and the presidency, I hope, are are listening as well as managing obviously the proceedings right now that they will include language and the demands that are coming for uh, justice and fairness and equity to be as at the heart of what we do next we would look for a dialogue and a process within the cop but more importantly the cop is a way of educating the world you know thousands of media outlets thousands of conversations like this Owen, uh, uh, are really important in getting the whole world to understand that this is an ongoing problem it's not just about a week or two in a summit here and there this is something that is going to impact everybody's life for the rest of their lives you know and so having conversation about the systemic problems that really are the blockages is what we is what we need to be talking about and we mustn't be afraid of talking about the legacy of our past and find ways to talk about patriarchy to talk about uh, white supremacy to talk about imperialism because those are the uh, the big forces those are the big elephants in the room that are preventing us shifting to a system that does not damage uh, human beings and does not damage the planet amen very eloquently put um farhan has been such an honor and for those watching or listening to the podcast do follow farhana on twitter uh, farhana that's her name f a r h a n a climate um and you'll see her as COP26 develops, her her take, sharing her work, which obviously everyone should support. So it's been a real, real honour. Thank you for so brilliantly and succinctly um, explaining all of that. It was, yeah, yeah, it was thank really you. Cool. Yeah, do follow me on Twitter. I'll be using that. And Instagram, I'll be launching from tonight a sort of Bridget Jones diary, but, you know, Fahana Jones diary. <laughs> so at the end of every evening, I will clock up... Uh, <laughs> Uh, my achievements and uh, you know caffeine consumed and words uh, uh, you know read and so please do follow me on that thank you thanks very much it's, no, it's an honor and I, I will be checking it out myself later but thank you so so much lots of love yeah. and uh, fingers crossed thank you take care Bye. um fantastic to have farhana and our other brilliant guests um i'm now going to bring in uh and uh, before i say this i think it's really important to say that We've not lived, I mean, if, we're, if we're trying to fight for a better world, we're taking the scenic route. We've not lived through the, the most joyous of periods of human history. I think we can all probably agree with that. It's been a long few years. What gives me hope as a geriatric millennial, which is my age group, 
are people significantly younger than myself because the leadership, so much of the leadership of the climate movement has fallen, of course, to younger millennials and Generation Z. And they're the ones who've often, obviously Greta Thunberg being the most striking example, they're the ones who've been really driving as best they can. Obviously, we have people from other generations who've done incredible work. It's just striking that this generation um, are taking no shit, I suppose. And in that spirit, we're very lucky to have the brilliant activist, uh, Dominique Palmer, uh, who is one of those younger people who is, is going to save the world, actually, Dominique. So no pressure. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> Thank you for Fine. having me on. <laughs> It's an, it's an honour. Um, yeah, firstly, t- tell me about how you, I just think it's quite interesting how you yourself got involved in all of this and what that tells us. I mean, how much hope and optimism is my optimism well-founded in terms of people from your generation who, who are taking this seriously? So just tell me about your story and, mm-hmm. and, and where you think other younger people are at. Yeah, so I mean, with us young people, we felt that we have to stand up Um, for our planet for the injustice that we see and for our futures and that's why there's been such an incredible momentum of the youth climate movement lately so I first got involved when I became aware of the severity of the climate crisis but also started seeing um, posters around my area at the time talking about how air pollution was affecting my community and I started piecing together the dots and realizing that the climate crisis is also a health crisis and that there's something that can be done about it and it doesn't have to be this way. And that's when the climate strikes were first starting. And so I attended my very first climate strike. And after that, I just got involved in organizing. I got involved in joining different groups and just continuing to learn more about climate justice and about the intersectionalities. And that's how I joined. And I've started um, doing work in lots of different areas, including doing a lot of public speaking on environmental justice and really trying to push that forward and just apply pressure on leaders to get the climate action that we all deserve on this planet and the action that humanity and our natural world so desperately need. And I haven't looked back ever since and I'm surrounded by an absolutely incredible community of young people fighting for the same thing and applying pressure too. So tell me about why you're at COP26 and what you're hoping to get from COP26. So I'm here now um, in Glasgow at COP26 because I am one of the youth voices that I hear. Also, this is a very exclusive COP and usually people from marginalised communities aren't often represented in these spaces. And so for me, this is you know, a chance to um, be represented. It's a chance to push forward the intersectional Um, aspect that there is to the climate crisis and what I am really pushing here at COP is that the time is over for empty promises we can see through it we see through all of the empty promises we see through the lies it is time for action now it is time for leaders to stop um, cozying up essentially with fossil fuel lobbyists it is time for real action in line with the climate science and one that doesn't leave anyone behind because a sustainable future is possible and we can avert this climate crisis and so I'm here to really push that forward and also here in the UK to um, push forward the fact that the UK have history shows us that they have responsibility to act on this um, and 
the words are not lining up with the action right now. They couldn't be further apart. You were talking that that word and intersectional. Talk, talk tell tell me about this kind of this idea of intersectional climate justice. What are we talking about when we use that 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 phrase? Yeah, so it's focusing on the fact that although the impacts of climate change can be felt everywhere, not everyone is feeling them exactly the same and in the same way. So we may well, like we're not all in the same boat when it comes to this. And so this means that a lot of communities that already face um, oppression and discrimination, these will only be worsened by the climate crisis because of the systems we exist in, it determines who um, gets allocated re- resources uh, to adapt to these situations. It determines who has a voice uh, when it comes to these climate spaces and decision-making. And also it can really impacts people differently in terms of the direct impact. So, for example, around the world, we can see how people on in the most affected countries and most affected areas are already facing those direct impacts. But yet a lot of them are not here at the COP and couldn't be here because of the exclusive nature and because of how difficult it was to get here. And also even here in the UK, we can see that the climate crisis is already having an impact, in particular with air pollution, and how communities, especially black and brown communities, are facing this disproportionately. And black and brown communities across the UK live in the most polluted areas. And so it's looking at all of these different aspects and the fact that that climate change doesn't exist separate and in isolation and by itself. It exists in society and it exists within these systems. And so therefore it's going to affect us all in different ways within these systems so what do you think the strategy is as i said we've got these great movements that younger people have been building um what how do you see things going with those movements after cop 26 what's the kind of strategy as you see it so it's only going to ramp up again obviously because of what happened during covid a lot of the momentum um you know, it was hard to try and keep that momentum up and keep it going, but people have still been doing work and doing so many incredible things and applying pressure. And we can see the impact that we've had even over the last couple of years. And so going on from COP, it is so important to realize that COP isn't like the last stage or like the last chance that we have. And most of the action will be happening after and outside of COP. And we're just going to continue and applying pressure and more and more people are joining the movement and more people are seeing the intersectional aspect of the climate crisis. And so that's bringing so many different communities in and so many people are seeing the role that they can have and that they can play and that there's just so much to be done. And I really can feel that energy building and I can feel more community building. I can feel people coming together. And this really isn't the end. We're going to continue pushing and rising up and standing up for climate justice. Dominique, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us at very short notice and for just putting that so well. And um, fingers crossed it. Are you there for the whole thing? You just, that's it. You're yeah, I'm here for the two weeks. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it'll yeah. be an interesting, an interesting experience. Uh, Glasgow's great. Gotta love Glasgow. Yeah, I'm liking it so far. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a great, it's a great city. Um, yeah. But this is about, as you say, it's about building pressure. It's about building that. Mm-hmm 
grassroots pressure from below and you're mm-hmm. the absolute forefront of that so it's a big honor i should say as well do follow dominique palmer on twitter uh, it's d-o-m-i dommy palmer p-a-l-m-e-r and i should have said as well before mark maslin as well follow him prof mark m-a-s-l-i-n so thank you so much dominique have a great time up there and keep inspiring us and saving the world that's the aim thank you thank you for having me on and you can also follow me on instagram as well and fighters for future international my uh, the movement that i'm part of will be posting a lot of things there and you can get involved fantastic all right well have a great, great one thank and you speak soon see you speak soon bye take care bye um my voice is not not holding out very well i feel fine i just clearly just shouted too much on the night out um just before i wrap up I was gonna. I was gonna. I was like, should I bother talking about this or not? Um, I was trending on Twitter on Friday because it was a day ending Y. Um, what happens uh, when I trend is basically a disparate number of factions who've got quite, a, I'd say, an, an interesting level of fixation um, in terms of anything I say or do. Uh, they all just jump on anti-trans activists. They're quite. I mean, the most obsessive of all of them. Uh, Tommy Robinson types. And what I call agrocentrists. Uh, that's not all centrists. It's a type of so-called moderate who just obsessively hate the left, and that's become their defining personality. Um, and the reason I was trending is because last Sunday, Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, um, well, she's been in the middle of a firestorm, a really horrific firestorm, whipped up after the horrible murder of David Amos by um, a suspected Islamist fundamentalist terrorist. Uh, because of comments she'd made, which had nothing to do with that murder. And that was whipped up by various right-wing newspapers. It was whipped up um, by conservative politicians. But it was also whipped up by the Labour leadership, because senior Labour advisers briefed the Mail on Sunday and other right-wing newspapers against Angela Rayner when she was on bereavement leave, because one of her, uh, someone exceptionally close to her, uh had had died amongst all of this now friends of angela rayner are exceptionally worried about her and very angry about the briefing against her by the labor leadership so when there had been a number of arrests uh of people who uh, allegedly uh, sent threats to her one of whom has been charged but the, after the first arrest after 24 hours there had been nothing from the labor leadership now honestly if it was Jeremy Corbyn. I know I hate playing this mind game, but it is true. If it was Jeremy Corbyn and his advisors had been briefing numerous newspapers against his deputy and there was a big firestorm and there were people being arrested for putting threats against them and they, and, and Jeremy Corbyn had said nothing, the whole media would be screaming blue murder. I mean, it's just a waste of time to pretend otherwise. Waste of time. And I'm not going to insult anyone's intelligence by even going further down that route. So I put in a press request to the Labour leadership to ask whether, 24 hours after the first arrest, whether they were going to do a statement about the deputy leader, Angela Rayner, and what she'd gone through. Now, I didn't. I did actually re- eventually get a response. My job is a standard thing. People who work for newspapers put press requests into the Labour leadership done that for years under Ed Miliband, Jeremy Corbyn, and now Keir Starmer. 
Um, but originally what I did is I quote, I put it on Twitter and I checked Keir Starmer's feed to see if he put a statement before I did so. No statement had been issued. And then when I checked again, he'd unfollowed me. I thought that was funny. And actually probably the most relatable thing he's done for a long time. Cultivate your Twitter feed. You don't need people. Because I've, I've made my position clear with Keir Starmer. He broke all his leadership election pledges. I wished him well when he won, even though I didn't vote for him. But then radical domestic policies, they've just thrown again on TV, nationalisation of energy out the window, uh, party unity, electability, professionalism, integrity, all thrown out the window. Uh, his approval ratings are catastrophic. They're worse than Jamie Corbyn's at the same stage of the leadership. Um, now, I've made my position clear in all of that. He, he's unfollowed several other journalists over the past few months, which I was already aware of for criticising him, which I thought was funny. Um, but I, 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 I mentioned this as an aside, and uh, Keir Starmer's remaining followers on Twitter, who are the most ridiculous people I think I've come across in British politics. Absurd people. Because... They all kicked off over it, basically. And the reason I say absurd is because Corbynism is often called a cult. And actually, every political movement has slightly, you know, like whether it be Scottish nationalism or or Corbynism, you always get people on, online who are a bit over the top, you know? It's just, part, it's just part of politics. But the thing is about Corbynism is, at the time, a lot of defensiveness that, a lot of his followers had on Twitter and Facebook was because every day the media was just ripping him to pieces and his own MPs were ripping him to pieces. Um, and they felt they were investing in a movement and an idea in a lot of ideas and policies, but there isn't any vision offered by Keir Starmer and he's had the easiest ride of any Labour leader from his own MPs and the media since Tony Blair. So his collapse in approval ratings, he just did that himself. That was his own team because obviously they're very bad at their jobs and they haven't offered a vision that inspires people during this terrible crisis. Unlike, I don't know, Labour during World War II, bigger emergency, would have thought Churchill would have walked that election. He didn't because Labour offered a vision of what the peace looked like. So the fact they act so, I mean, they are the most angry, nasty people. Well, they're not the nastiest because I get far-right people send me death threats though some of those death threats i've seen those threats of violence increasing use terminology that originated from so-called centrist twitter and sometimes the level of rage i get from supposed centrists i i i have to click to see they're not far, actually on the far right because it's so unhinged the tweets they send but i just think it's got to the stage where they are angry because they invested so much hope in this they thought it would you know didn't have the baggage of jamie corbyn uh, he was he took on the left. All of that would mean that it would be a success. The media, as I said, easy ride. MPs, easy ride, and it all fell apart. You know, he's a very unpopular man, and they want someone to blame. So unfortunately, uh, they can't blame the media. So they have to blame a single Guardian columnist on Twitter. They simultaneously say I'm more powerful. My tweets can destroy the Labour Party. Just one tweet, I must be God. But I'm also irrelevant at the same time. So they flip between the two attacks. All I say is, it's just I'm not going to stop. You know, most of my videos and articles about the Tories, Tory injustice. That's what my career has basically been founded upon. But the Labour opposition is failing to offer an inspiring alternative, and that's why the Tories are getting away with absolutely anything. So I think it was just important to say that because I mean, it's te they're tedious. It is boring. I'm like. I click on the trend and all these people, you know, they're just, they're just so, you know, they built up this very demonic image of, 
of me, which I'm just bored of hearing about myself. I click and I'm like, oh God, you're going on, you're going on about me again, aren't you? Rather than the issues. But I just think it's interesting. Um, I've said this before, but that's where I'm at with the Labour leadership. Right. I am done because my voice is going to collapse and I've got to go to Yeovil for the Literary Festival to do a talk this evening at eight o'clock. Um, it was a big honour to have these brilliant guests. We've got, as I say, this documentary next week coming out, which is going to be brilliant, um, about uh, work, a working class community in South London and how property developers are, are tearing it to pieces. Um, what we're trying to do is pass the megaphone over to people who are otherwise not listened to in the media. So it's going to be a great documentary as I think our documentary about Conservative Conference was, and you made that possible through patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 and your super chats like David Barata, Tad Campwell, um, Tarina Amadi Parker. Um, we've got lots of interviews coming up next week, um, including, there's a bit of a one-off, but uh, I've interviewed my mum about robots. You'll see what I mean. Um, that's enough for me. I'm going to go and do something with my throat. Um, and also I can see the Wi-Fi is collapsing. So this is all, it's all going very well. Uh, it's been a big honour to, as I've said, have our brilliant guests as ever. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us, everybody, and uh, and for supporting us. Press like on YouTube um, to get encourage more people to watch. Press subscribe uh, to get all our videos, including our documentary. And also uh, subscribe to our podcast. Uh, that is enough for me. Lots of love, everybody. Take care and have a great week. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.